Hello everybody. Henri Bergson is one of our most significant vitalist thinkers, who from the late 1800s until his death in 1941 offers one of the most sophisticated modern versions of vitalism. His work is constructed as a reaction to a variety of strains of rationalist thought as found in the likes of Charles Darwin, Herbert Spencer and Auguste Comte. In contrast, Bergson emphasises themes of life, vitality, creativity, duration. Themes which he developed in a collection of works famed for their prose style and his use of metaphor and imagery. Notably, Bergson would win the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1928. His work is famed for a recursive expression of life itself. His writings are not strictly representations of his themes. They are more performative, written to express what life itself is. We can find the common denominator of many themes of his work in his 1889 work, Time and Free Will, or in French, Essai sur les données immédiates de la conscience, Essay on the Immediate Givens of Consciousness, roughly. In this lecture, then, I will explain the core themes of time and free will. I will begin with a short biography of Bergson to give you a sense of the man. Subsequently, I will talk about the overall core themes of time and free will. Bergson's famous distinctions between time and space, the qualitative and quantitative, his theory of duration, and what that tells us about why the human being is fundamentally free. Part 1. Short Biography Bergson has a quite cosmopolitan background. He was born in Paris. His father was a pianist of Polish extraction. His mother was Jewish, Anglo-Irish, from near Doncaster, I believe. And Bergson spent his earliest years in England. He and his family later went back to live in France and where he elected to become a, a naturalised French citizen. He remained fluent in English and was, though, directly involved in overseeing English translations of his work. He went on to become a school teacher in French secondary school, but later was appointed to the prestigious École Normale Supérieure in 1898. His first book was his doctoral thesis, which became Time and Free Will, which we will talk about. And he went on to hold the prestigious chair of philosophy at the College de France from 1900 to 1921 and went on to receive several honours. He became a president of the Académie Française, which is an old, I suppose, venerable and very exclusive institution for promoting and safeguarding the French language. In 1930, in 1930 he was awarded the Legion of Honour, one of France's highest public honours. The reason I am drawing your attention to these awards is because it is very hard to just grasp how well-known, reputed and famous and influential Bergson was. In the Anglophone world now, I think it's fair to say we have less of a sense of the appeal of the public intellectual. But this is not the case in France. Bergson set the mould for the public, engaged academic and the intellectual rock star particularly after the publication of Creative Evolution, L'Evolution Créatrice, in 1907. Bergson's fame took off. The work was an international bestseller. He became famous in the media. 
His lectures attracted huge audiences and were often overcrowded and rambunctious affairs. And he would be met with cheers and applause. Reportedly, on a visit to New York in 1913, Bergson became possibly the first philosopher to cause a traffic jam on Broadway. Bergson's work itself was also hugely influential in literary and artistic circles. Most famously, Marcel Proust's In Search of Lost Time is influenced by Bergson. This fame tells us that his ideas on life, duration, creativity have a universal appeal. The origins of that appeal can be explained in Time and Free Will, which I will turn to momentarily. Bergson himself died in 1941 in Paris under the Vichy government. He refused an offer of exemption from the Nazi racial laws the Vichy were implementing. Part 2. Qualitative Time and Quantitative Time To get to the heart of Bergson's philosophy, we need to understand that he is a dualist of sorts. Dualists divide the world into two substances, two distinct substances, matter and spirit. And this makes Bergson, of course, a vitalist, but he's a distinctive type of dualist. So I don't think we could say he is a Cartesian dualist. The distinction he draws is not so much matter and mind or matter and spirit and more time and space. But more of that momentarily. Firstly, the overall trust of all of Bergson's philosophy is that time is primary and space is secondary and consequently derivative. Time is effectively what life is. Indeed, time is what we are. This is quite a radical thesis and one that will be taken up in many forms over the 20th century in European philosophy, most notably in Martin Heidegger's work. But in Time and Free Will, Bergson is doing something quite radical in the history of philosophy. If we think back to Plato, the thought was that the eternal and immutable is primary, the forms, as Plato famously called them, and the world of flux and appearances is secondary and derived from the former. Bergson completely reverses this thesis. Not only is he saying that life is a form of process, flux and change, he's going even deeper than that and saying reality is change or more precisely movement that which exists is dynamic even more anything that exists exists because it is dynamic to exist is to change time and free will then is an attempt to explain the existence of the human mind as flux change is a necessary condition of human consciousness and time and free will explains to us how the flux of consciousness constitutes the majority and the reality of human life. The original French title is probably more accurate than the English translation. The French title is Essai sur les données immédiates de la conscience, which we can translate as Essay on the uh, immediate givens of consciousness or alternatively Essay on the immediate qualia of consciousness. Bergson then is interested in how consciousness immediately unfolds or gives itself to itself. There are three, I think, core elements and themes we need to pay attention to in time and free will. First, the idea is that psychological experience cannot be quantified, or is not quantifiable. Secondly, time also is not quantifiable as something immeasurable, yet it is ever-present or palpable to our experience. And finally, and consequently, 
Bergson's theory of time, which he develops in Time and Free Will, enables him to assert the theory of freedom. Because at the core, time and free will is a defence of freedom, or a defence of free will. The way Bergson gets to that is quite different, quite original. He's not basing his defence of free will on an opposition between freedom and determinism, or a median position of compatibility. Rather, he's arguing that humans are originally free because of how we experience time. So, how then do we experience time? Well, Bergson thinks that we need to attend to the immediacy of time. And once we do that, we will see that time is primarily that which makes our life intelligible. Bergson famously begins Time and Free Will with a critique of traditional dogmatic approaches to our understanding of perception. This stems from a traditional empirical understanding. If we take someone, say, like David Hume, the idea would be that our minds are derived from sense experience. Sense experience occurs in a flux of unitary impressions which we receive from the external world. That impressions are unitary or discrete tells us something about the magnitude of our perceptions. Our perceptions have an intensity. They are felt to greater or lesser degrees and we can say then say that they are subject to increase and diminution. Here, Bergson, I think, is drawing a distinction between internal perception, perceptions as felt, and external perceptions, perceptions that are extensive. But there's a bit of a problem here. From the perspective of magnitude or range, how can that which we count to be both extensive and intensive as well be extended and unextended? As Bergson himself puts it, and I quote, all discussion between determinists and their opponents implies a previous confusion of duration with extensity, of succession with simultaneity, of quality with quantity. We tend to have confused ideas we tend to have confused ideas about both quality and quantity. We tend to think dogmatically in the empirical vein that internal and external experiences in the first instances are countable, measurable, quantitative. And the external state of the world happily maps on to our inner states. Also, because we assume our perceptions are discrete, we think that they are in some way atomized and therefore thinkable in units and are therefore countable, of course. This also suggests that consciousness can be characterized as flat and homogeneous. Now, what do we mean by that? Or why homogeneous? Well, if we can break conscious experience into units, one unit is as measurable as any other and it is therefore countable and flat insofar as it is counted. In contrast, Bergson thinks consciousness is alive, rich, and not at all static. Consciousness itself is the time of immediate flow. Consequently, time becomes, I suppose, somewhat relativized for Bergson. This is to say time is the different experiences of this time. So there's no absolute Newtonian clock or universal time which is the same in all instances rather consciousness is real time where it is occurring this idea is common sense enough if you think of how time is felt for a different variety of people in different contexts you will get to see what Bergson is driving at 
time when you are bored is different to time when you are excited and having a nice time. The time of the inmate on dead row is different to the expectant child's time on Christmas Eve. For some reason, we think of time, though, as quantitative, measurable and uniform, that it can be measured on clocks, watches, calendars, electronic diaries and smartphones, and is therefore measurable in a mechanistic way. In fact, for Bergson, time is the opposite. It is intense, novel, dynamic, immeasurable. The philosophical point, then, Bergson is making is that time is in excess of material causality. If you think about it, it makes no sense to say something like one inch or centimetre of consciousness. This is a bit of a bizarre thing to say. The point is that none of these things are immediate or present, where we introspect and examine what Bergson calls the immediate givens of consciousness. We cannot limit ourselves to notions of causality when attending to the inner duration of experience. And here Bergson is asking us to rethink how we think about time. Time is understood in a basic mathematical or physical sense is Bergson thinks represented in the form of succession. So one discrete and identical moment after another. The trouble with this and here he is not a million miles from Immanuel Kant's critique of Hume, is if we think of time as isolated and discrete moments, there is nothing connecting these different instances. The moments are self-contained and do not connect or interpenetrate each other. This perspective is not limited to maths and physics. We also think like this in our everyday life too, when we measure time in terms of discrete seconds, minutes and hours on the clock. The problem for Bergson is that this does not at all explain the flow of conscious experience or how moments connect to each other. In other words, how the discrete moments of consciousness do not endure. Bergson thinks that we have inculcated the habit of spatializing time. Now, what does that mean? Time is not a juxtaposition of ever-renewing or ever-novelizing presence or present moments. And the most basic visual representation of this would be that time is successive, one moment after another, along a line, say, from A to B to C to D. But that underlines for Bergson the trouble with images. If we represent time visually, then we tend to think of it as a line. So what we are effectively doing is transposing the extension of space into the mind with one point ranged alongside others. To think of time in this way is abstract and not lived. Part 2. Time, not space. Time, at least as we have come to conceive it, is that which is without quality or intensity. And unfortunately this leads to a very impoverished notion of time, according to Bergson. The time we use instrumentally, mechanically in our everyday lives is predictable and measures and purportedly maps onto the mathematical and ordered nature of reality itself. This time is predetermined. Time is like this, always has been like this, and always will be. Here, spatialized time is made up of segments that are distinct. One minute is a unity unto itself. Any moment, though, is separated. The way we think of it as separate when we abstractly measure time is with the view that there is no connection to any previous seconds or imminent minutes. 
this second is this second, not that second. This minute is this minute, and not that minute. What all this amounts to is that our conventional habits and patterns of thinking about time are illusory. In fact, we've lost the ability to think of time at all, and Bergson wants to return us to this lost knowledge. Bergson gives the examples of counting sheep, or counting the soldiers on a hill in a battalion. Try imagining a battalion of uniformed soldiers on a hill. I'm told that a battalion is between 500 and 1,000 soldiers. They first appear as homogeneous, but to count them, we appeal to space. There is what Bergson calls a quantitative multiplicity. And within that multiplicity, each soldier takes up a specific space, which allows us to distinguish one from the other until we have counted up the lot. But what's actually happening here? Well, firstly, we are unwittingly disregarding the qualitative differences between soldiers. Secondly, we are also disregarding the types of being they are, their common features or humanity, if you like, since we are treating them as homogeneous units. There is no difference between one soldier and one sheep. Qua unit. We are just counting here's and theirs without any qualitative difference. The thing is, though, before we count a set of soldiers, sheep or trees or whatever the quantitative multiplicity is, the set of sheep or soldiers, however, prior to that counting, there must be a unity there to be quantified, to be counted. There must be all of the sheep or soldiers to count as a whole before we get to the discrete instances of sheep or soldiers. This is what Bergson calls qualitative multiplicity. A qualitative multiplicity is a state which is most isomorphous with consciousness itself. And what is more, because the different individuals are thought together, they are naturally successive and therefore form a duration. Again, Bergson really helps us with his examples. He talks about a clock striking four times. And here I quote him. This is a long quote. Whilst I am writing these lines, the hour strikes on a neighbouring clock, but my inattentive ear does not perceive it until several strokes have made themselves heard. Hence I have not counted them, and yet I only have to turn my attention backwards to count up the four strokes which have already sounded and add them to those which I hear. If, then, I question myself carefully on what has just taken place, I perceive that the first sound has struck my ear and even affected my consciousness, but that the sensations produced by each one of them, instead of being set side by side, has melted into one another in such a way as to give the whole a peculiar quality, to make a kind of musical phrase out of it. So, this example is instructive. The number, that is, four strikes, is our qualitative multiplicity. But the way Bergson poses it is that these strikes melt or interpenetrate each other. Rather than being discrete and unconnected moments, the strikes are peculiar, have an internal context and intensity, and are indivisible as they occur. This state of qualitative multiplicity is an indivisible moment. In fact, moment is not the right word, since what is singular about these four strikes is unrepeatable. When we quantify the strikes of the clock or the notes of a song, which is all very instrumental and useful, but we do not get to the intensive actuality of the experience. The problem is, we think of the duration of experience via a wholly 
inappropriate medium, that is space or extension. Bergson, when talking about experiencing sound, suggests that we think of time as, and I quote, a homogeneous medium in which our conscious states are arranged alongside one another as in space, so as to form a discrete multiplicity. What is happening, for some reason, is that we are turning the authentic reality of our immediate experience into space. If this all sounds very abstract to you, it should. Because when we measure time in terms of space, that is exactly what we are doing. We are abstracting a segmented, fragmented and channeled idea of extension and treating it as if it is primary. Our understanding of space has its origins then in time and not the other way around. But how do we get to this abstraction of time from space? Now, there's a question. Well, for Bergson, we get the abstraction in two specific ways. Firstly, we think that extension is an aspect of the physical qualities of things. So, say, a sensation we have of a colour or a sound are taken as directly re-presenting how things are themselves in the external world. For example, if I'm seeing a blue stick of varying hues of blue, when I think of that and try to articulated that to myself in a rational mode of thinking, I'm suggesting that I see several discrete blue objects. The sensation of blue represents supposedly different single properties of the object. But what is it to say this? Basically, that my sensation of the colour blue is extended, spread out as part of the object. I abstract extension from experience. Space is the spreading out of different and now countable properties. Secondly, the second reason for thinking of space in an abstract sense is because of Immanuel Kant. Kant thought space is an a priori condition of experience. We are equipped with the ability to distinguish several perceptual impressions out in space. We can think of space itself as having an existence independent of its content. Or we can think of many objects and we think of space as formless without objects. This means space is an a priori form or ordering of our experience of external sensations. Irrespective of what we are experiencing in the external world, it is the fact that we are intuiting spatially, in a spatial sense, which is primary for Kant. Bergson thinks that Kant is mixing things up a little. So, in Bergson, our idea of space comes from an act of subjectivity. And if those ideas are deriving from an act and they are continually occurring irrespective of any temptation we have to isolate and explain them as single simple phenomenon. An act implies duration, a movement that occurs. If this is the case then there cannot be a mind standing outside our sensible experiences unifying them all at the same time and setting them in juxtaposition. So for Bergson time is the acts of conscious experience. While Kant thought a priori forms of space and time were different to our sensible experience, Bergson does not think we can separate the ordering of thought from sensible experience. Kant thought the transcendental structure of consciousness is radically different in kind from the flow of sensible experience. Bergson, in contrast, accepts the reality of the flux of experience. And this is the primacy of perception, the raw immediate flow of the flux of situ situation. But what does this flow reveal to us? 
Well, there was no sense of time without succession, a before and after. But equally, there was no sense of time without what Bergson calls the act, or the joining of what we take to be discrete moments, but which are in fact enduring. This is effectively a form of synthesis of the now, the just gone, an imminent. Bergson's original contribution here is that time is primary, where traditionally time would be derived from the eternal and atemporal. The radical idea here is that there is no act that is not a form of the passage of time. Time is the movement of the present itself. It is duration. If this is the case, there are no states then that can be juxtaposed, delimited, demarcated. Every immediate supposed state is itself a moment of transition or activity. In fact, the very designation state is illusory. Part 3. Duration. There is no real or full difference between the passing of one state and the birth of another. To think like this is to suggest we are separate or successive states. In contrast, for Bergson, the idea is that we are changed without cessation. It does not really make sense to say state since this implies stasis or rest and any state is nothing but change. This appeal to the flux Bergson calls duration. Durée. Duration means nothing can ever remain the same but endures. Space is the medium that can actually achieve its state since it allows consciousness to discriminate one moment, point, unit from another. But to do this automatically acknowledges succession, e.g. one point after another. Note the temporal designation. Here we can see Bergson's radical metaphysics come to a head. The temporal moment is illusory. While it appears to cease, to pass away, it does not because the moment is of the continuous and indivisible activity of duration. Consequently, there is only eternal duration or the persistent creation of life. Duration retains all past moments and all future occurrences because duration itself is divided. It is indivisible and continually draws together in a perpetual present that is continually presenting itself. Any division is just a secondary spatialization of time that we impose on the superior reality of duration. In Bergson's own words, and this is a long quote, and I quote, Pure duration is the form which the succession of our conscious states assumes when our ego lets itself live, when it refrains from separating its present state from its former states. For this purpose, it need not be entirely absorbed in the passing sensation or idea, for then, on the contrary, it would no longer endure. Nor indeed, it forget its former states. It is enough that, in recalling these states, it does not set them alongside its actual state as one point alongside another, but forms both the past and the present states into an organic whole, as happens when we recall the notes of a tune melting, so to speak, into one another. Thus, when it comes to the question of consciousness, Bergson reveals that the immediate that of consciousness gives itself to us in two distinct ways as duration and spatially. Consciousness is given both quantitatively and spatially, that is true, spatial forms, and they are given in their real temporal form. The former is derivative from the latter. When we experience things as duration, then we are perceiving things directly. So, while spatial forms can be instrumentally valuable, 
Clocks help us meet on time. Diaries help us schedule events. All these activities do, though, give us some bad habits and distorts our access to the true nature of reality, which is to say duration, as well as blocking our ability to intuit the true nature of inner consciousness. It is when we think or intuit that we see that our mind is not made up of fragmented sections. This tells us our mind is pure or true duration. Consciousness is a unified and indivisible multiplicity. Discrete multiplicity is consciousness organised just like things as they are in space. That is here, that is there. All things in our field of experience have sharp borders or distinct, have isolated edges. They are isolated entities that are externally related to each other. But, according to Bergson, this is a misguided view if we take it as primary. Real time is not distinct, but an unbroken flow of true and pure duration. What does consciousness look like when thought of in this way? Remember, Bergson is a type of dualist. It is imperative to separate consciousness from the external world to discern its real character. Duration has just nothing to do with space nor separate objects in the external world. Conscious states are not distinct but unified. Their unity is not separable but dissolves from one state to another. In other words, there are no sharp lines, demarcations or edges between thoughts. In addition, conscious states are self-moving. They are the duration of the world as it unfolds. Although it is not his explicit purpose at time and free will, Bergson does seem to be making a value judgment, and that is that it is bad for us to only understand ourselves in spatial or quantitative terms. As he notes, if we focus too much on space, then we end up with, and I quote, a self whose states and changes permeate into one another and undergo a deep alteration as soon as we separate them from one another in order to set them out in space. It is like we are mutilating ourselves in some way, divorcing ourselves from the creativity of life itself with a distorted, quantitative view of the world. If consciousness is a qualitative continuity without break or interruption, with each state flowing into each other without disconnection or disruption then our consciousness is as flow is self-moving and as such cannot be determined if the deepest realm of consciousness is pure flow then our inner life is continually novelizing itself and if it is continually novelizing itself then it is in some way also free it is becoming new duration implies everything is in a constant process of change consequently duration is always a moment of tension and contraction, tightening and relaxation. As humans, then, time is an intense, intensive and intimate part of our lives. We are not explicable as things or objects out there in the world. Neither are we just processes or sequences or events. Rather, we are time or duration itself. But why does this make us free? Now, there's a question. Well, it is because of Bergson's idiosyncratic view of determinism. Determinism, the law that cause follows effects and that if we are caused and we cannot be self-causing, that is free, follows on from the idea of spatialized time. Here time is objectified into different points or objects as we have seen. If that is the case, if we think like this, then we are not thinking creatively. We are making a picture of ourselves as beings that are determined, and this is a situation Bergson would rather avoid. Duration, however, is closer to our own inner natures, because duration is indivisible, and we are duration, it means we cannot be caused. And because duration is continually unfolding, this means a new and unpredictable entity is present at each and every moment all at once. In raw human terms, 
our conscious life, its qualia, perceptions, memories, images, thoughts, ideas, are intensively different, but also melt and dissolve into each other. Thus, duration is immeasurable, and how it acts is indeterminate. In space, we are the result of, or we are acted upon. But in duration, we are live, we live, we act and are therefore free. This is essential to Bergson, because he wants to reject the view of the human being as mechanical. The human is naturally spontaneous, in Bergson's view. This is a bit of a tricky thought, quite subtle. The idea being the human mind, the free will, is not determinable as specific acts brought about by specific causes. Rather, it is those acts. The human is free. This is not about choosing between competing alternative options that negate a prior chain of causes. Instead, what Bergson is driving at is that duration implies the human being is continually free action itself. We usually post things like this in terms of a line of cause that determine ourselves. However, this is something that we think of only after the fact. It is only when something has happened that we think of things like alternatives or the past not taken. But in the moment, which is the truth, is where we are being enacted. Free will and determinism only matter retrospectively. But one way, free will and determinism is a false dichotomy, something we impose after something has incurred. The free will determinism opposition then is a bit of a pseudo problem. The self is duration, which is to say the continual flow of a pulsating present moment, aiming to express this capacity of ourselves reveals us as pure possibility, our continual unactualized possibility. Even if it might not feel like this often, it is always the case while we are alive. So, to be free, we aspire to express the growth and development of our most intimate selves, our inner duration. Such a developmental self, continually in growth, is the self as acting freely and spontaneously, which is our fundamental expression as free beings. In conclusion, Bergson emphasises time over space. In time and free will, consciousness is given to us in two divergent ways. We experience time as extensive, spatial and external, or we can experience time as duration and flow. The former is instrumental time, the time of clocks and smartphones and timetables. The latter is duration, which is lived time, the time of our interior life, which is palpable, acted and felt. That which is real is movement. To exist is equivalent to change, and this is Bergson's vitalist impulse. To exist is therefore to grow, to develop, to optimise our creative self-expression and to remain in tune with the endless creation of ourselves that we are. As cells, we tend to oscillate back and forth between these forms of self. This is to say that freedom is not easy. On the contrary, freedom is hard. Even if we are naturally self-generating and self-creating, it is hard to think that. More often than not, we succumb to the temptations of organised and spatial life remaining constrained by the ways our society is organised. When we can coalesce thinking about freedom with the freedom that we naturally are, then we have something truly special. It is the point, albeit rare, that we can grasp ourselves as well and truly alive. On that, I shall leave the last word to Henri Bergson, and I quote, Now, the free act takes place in time which is flowing, and not in time which is already flown. Freedom is therefore a fact, and among the facts which we observe there is none clearer. All the difficulties of the problem and the problem itself arise from the desire to endow duration with the same attributes as extensity, to interpret a succession by a simultaneity, 
and to express the idea of freedom in a language into which it is obviously untranslatable.